Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This just in, President Biden just canceled the second part of his overseas trip. Is that a sign that the debt ceiling negotiations are going poorly? The lead starts right now. Is the United States, are you and I, just weeks away from an an economic catastrophe? Round two of negotiations at the White House are wrapping up right now as President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy are trying to reach a debt limit deal but not finding it easy. Plus, he's known for pushing Kremlin propaganda, and now Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner, is claiming that a U.S. citizen, another one, was killed in the battle for Bakhmut. Is he telling the truth? While the U.S., by the way, is acknowledging Russian strikes in Ukraine are hitting and hit an American-made Patriot missile defense system. Testimony today calling to regulate artificial intelligence. Fears that malicious actors will use this amazing technology to commit fraud on a global scale. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start today with our money lead. With just hours before he heads overseas, President Biden's trip on the world stage has already been cut short. A source is telling CNN that the White House has canceled the second leg of the tour to Australia, to Papua New Guinea, which the president was scheduled to visit after the G7 later this week in Japan. Let's listen in on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the White House right now. And um, The president agreed to um, appoint a couple people from his administration to sit down and negotiate directly with uh, my team, so I found that to be productive, personally. But we've got a lot of work to do in a short amount of time. Now, I wish we had been able to be in this place 100 days ago. This is what we requested, but we are where we are, so we will work hard to make sure to try to have this to come to fruition. Will you meet again? Well, the great thing about that question is we've already have taken default off the table because the House Republicans passed a bill that raised the debt ceiling, limited our future spending, uh, saved taxpayers money by being able to pull back um, unspent money and waste and actually grow our economy by making our economy stronger and helping lifting people out of poverty into work. And so those are the parameters we'll talk about. Let me give a moment to have Leader McConnell say a few words. Let me just say what I've said since February. Uh, the president and the speaker are the keys to the deal. I'm prepared to try to deliver as much of my conference as I can for whatever the speaker and the president can agree to that we know will get a signature. Mr. Speaker, when will yes. we meet again? Oh, it's a no-brainer. I don't think anybody in America doesn't think if you had billions of dollars sitting out there that you appropriated two years ago, people could not spend, and it's hard-working taxpayers' money, <laughs> and the pandemic is over, you can't bring it back. It's, it's the only place in Washington that Democrats think you shouldn't do that. But I think at the end of the day, it will be in the bill. Mr. Speaker, when will you meet again? Yes, sir. A lot of Americans watching this probably wondering, why are Yeah, I am too. You know, the difficult part here is I came February 1st to sit down with the president, so we wouldn't be at this day. So how could we responsibly lift the debt ceiling, 
Our spending is out of control. That six trillion extra dollars the Democrats spent brought us inflation. How can we grow our economy and make us less dependent on China and actually work together? Unfortunately, for all those thanking that, for 97 days, the president ignored us and said we couldn't meet. It wasn't until the Republicans would no longer ignore the problem and actually raise the debt ceiling, pass a bill, did we finally get a meeting. Uh, it's unfortunate we are where we are, but the good thing about it is Republicans always look to find a solution. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker yes. you said um, earlier this week that you were still very far apart. We are. We're still very far apart at this point. Yes. What progress was made in this meeting, and you wanted to see a deal by the end of the week. Yes. Do you think a deal could be possible? It is possible to get a deal by the end of the week. It's not that difficult to get to an agreement. Um, when you think about Limit, Save, Grow, the bill we passed, we raised the debt ceiling. We cap future spendings. We grow, the, grow our spending in Congress by 1% each year. That gives you trillions of dollars of savings. We bring back money that we have already appropriated from the taxpayer that wasn't spent in a pandemic. We put in work requirements that the president voted for as a senator that in Wisconsin just a couple months ago passed by 82%. It lifts people out of poverty, put them into jobs. What that does is helps our supply chain. So no longer do we borrow money from China to pay people not to work. And the only thing we're talking about are able-bodied people with no dependents. That's all you're talking about. It's already in place in certain areas. And so then we make ourselves more energy independent. We change the, the red tape that we can actually build things in America. So the roads we want to build, the energy projects we want to build to become energy independent. So it lowers the price to Americans, but at the same time creates more jobs and the economy gets stronger. Are you closer to the beginning of the deal? I would think that uh, this, I would ask you, this Congress is not putting any pressure on the Lebanese political class, like the president. I'm thinking this opportunity to give this video. All right. Co come back to me when we're not talking about the debt ceiling. Yes, but this situation is still unresolved. The president, as you know, is about to head overseas for the G7. Should he stay put and not go? Look, the president is the president of the United States. He can make his decisions of what's best and how to use it. The president has now, what has changed in this meeting is, the president changed the scope of who's all negotiating. Instead of all the four leaders, it's really he's finally taking Leader McConnell's advice that he's applied to him. The same advice you gave to President Trump that it worked out, same advice to um, President Obama and others appoint somebody from the president's team who can work with the speaker's team to see if we could come to an agreement. That is what the decision was made in this meeting. So the structure of, of um, how we negotiate has improved. So it now gives you a better opportunity. Even though we only have a few days to get it done, had we done this back 97 days ago, we'd already have a bill passed. Yes, ma'am. Look, uh, great question. As you really know, is for many times the White House and the President would say Republicans are going to cut the veterans. We would say that was a lie. Today, out of appropriations, it was proven it was a lie. We actually increased spending for our veterans. It's like any other household. You prioritize where you spend your money. The real question is, how much debt is too much? We're at $32 trillion almost. 
120% of our GDP. That means it's larger than our economy by 20%. This is the equivalent of your child having a credit card and they hit the limit again and again and again. And every year when your child hits the limit, all you do is increase the limit. Well, it comes to a point now that you can't afford it. So do you just increase the limit again? Or do you actually take a serious thought of where you're spending your money? You're still gonna fund the things that are most important to you, but you're gonna eliminate the waste. Maybe you don't go to Starbucks every single day. Maybe you don't waste the money there. We, the president just now appointed uh, individuals. We will set, I would like to meet today, actually, and just start meeting until we get this done. Yes. All right, we've been listening to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking outside the White House after meeting with President Biden on the current uh, debt crisis. McCarthy said the two sides remain very far apart, but that a deal could theoretically be reached by the end of the week. No one really has any hopes that will happen, though. Let's get straight to CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who's at the White House for us, as well as Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, uh, what do you make of what we just heard uh, from House Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy? Yeah, one of the things that he noted there that they agreed to in this meeting was to have direct talks between the speaker and the president. Because for some time, at least the last week where they actually have had began these negotiations, there have been more people in the room. There have been members of the staff from Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, the Democratic leader Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries, among some others. Now it sounds like, according to McCarthy, that it will be direct engagement between McCarthy and Biden. So it was a process decision. A lot of the policy, the policy though, has not been decided. And And that is really where the hurdles will come in order to overcome, in order to get a deal. It does not sound like that they came any closer on their significant differences, which include how long to increase the national debt limit, how how much they should cap discretionary spending. Republicans had pushed for decade-long caps in discretionary spending. Republicans, uh, the Democrats had pushed for something much smaller, perhaps two years or so. Republicans wanted to impose new work requirements on social safety net programs like Medicaid. They called that a red line. That's something Democrats said it was a red line for them. They don't want to include any of that whatsoever. There's some discussion about adding other provisions in there to ease the permitting of energy projects, but there's some disagreements still on the policy of those measures. All those will be significant issues to try to overcome in just a matter of days because if they get a deal on paper, that will just be a framework. Then they got to draft it into legislative text. They have to sell it to the broader House and Senate Republican and Democratic caucuses and try to get buy-in there and try to get it through both chambers. It takes about a week to get it through the Senate at least. It could take several days to get it through the House, and there is just not much time before that potential default deadline of June 1st, which is why every day is so significant and for them getting a deal here. So it sounds like they reached a deal on the process of going forward, but still major differences remain in the policy to avoid default, Jake. And Jeremy, even before uh, McCarthy and McConnell came out uh, and started talking about how far apart uh, they were with the White House on negotiations, we learned President Biden has already canceled uh, much of his upcoming overseas trip. He's still going to go to Japan for the G7, uh, but he's canceling everything after that. That seems to really signal uh, that there's a crisis here, that they're nowhere near a deal. Yeah, no doubt about it, Jake. I mean, there's certainly a recognition that they are now getting down to brass tacks, to the very difficult portion of these negotiations. I mean, my sources have been telling me that the initial part of these staff negotiations that we've seen happen over the last week or so have really been focused on just the basics of defining what they're actually negotiating about. And now they're actually getting down to the uh, the finer points of the policy that is happening here. And clearly there was a decision that was made uh, that even as this White House insists that President Biden can be president anywhere, this is a deal that 
is going to come down President Biden and the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And that is going to require President Biden, who has touted his negotiating abilities, his decades in the Senate as he campaigned for president. Uh, it's going to require him to get into the weeds of the policy here, to get into the details with the Speaker of the House and to be in a room with him. And so that is what we should expect to see next week. Now, the president is still going to be away for several days. He leaves tomorrow for Japan. I don't believe he's slated to return until Sunday or Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's going to be away for several crucial days here. But those staff negotiations will certainly continue. And as we've seen, there are already some emerging areas of, dis of agreement, but also some very major sticking points with just 16 days to go until potential default. Yeah, Manu, quickly, if you could, I mean, one of the sticking points um, is it's interesting because uh, so Republicans are pushing for work requirements for some government assistance. Uh, and President Biden initially seemed to signal the uh, willingness to talk about it. Uh, and then d Democratic congressional leaders like Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader in the House, said no, 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 no. And then Biden did a 180. I mean, that doesn't make negotiate whatever you think of the policy. That doesn't make negotiations any easier. Yeah, no question about it. And Hakeem Jeffries told his members, I'm told, that he will not accept any sort of deal that includes Medicaid work requirements. And it could rely on Democratic support to pass any bipartisan deal that comes between Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden. And McCarthy made clear that it is his red line to include work requirements in that Republican bill that passed the House. It would require about 80 hours a month for individuals to uh, obtain benefits through the Medicaid program, which, of course, is that entitlement program for health care for low-income individuals that have to work or have work-related activities for 80 hours a month in order to obtain those benefits that would apply to people who are 55 ages, age 55 and younger, uh, people who do not have any dependents. But Democrats say that they are not going to get behind any plan that could take away health care coverage. So how do they square that? That is going to be one of the big questions in the center of these negotiations, among all those other policy disputes with just so little time. The White House has resisted these negotiations from the beginning, saying they should simply raise the national debt limit without any conditions, any cuts whatsoever. But it's clear that they have backtracked on that, now realizing they have no other choice to try to negotiate a deal that includes some spending cuts. But even yeah. a deal could get a pushback from the left and the right, Jake, if, even if they get one in the days ahead. Yeah, thanks. Let's listen to, to the Democratic leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer. All of us in the room uh, together, and uh, hopefully we can come to an agreement. We don't have much time, but default is just the worst, worst alternative and the, the, um, having a bipartisan bill in both chambers is the only way, the only way we're going to avoid default. Hakeem and I are committed to trying to get that bipartisan bill done. It was a positive meeting. I thank the president for once again convening us. Uh, it was an open and an honest, but a very cordial discussion. We all agreed that the only path forward is to reach a bipartisan agreement anchored in common ground. We all agreed that default is not an acceptable option and must be avoided. And we all agreed that over the next few weeks we have to proceed with the fierce urgency of now in order to make sure we can reach that bipartisan common sense common ground agreement so that we can protect the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people. A few questions. Yes, yes.
Yeah, we're not going to get into negotiations out here. We have to come to common ground. That's the only way this has ever gotten done. It has never gotten done with one party saying you have to do it my way. You have to get both parties in both houses together. How yes. Well, you'll know it when you see it, and that what that means is that we'll not sacrifice our values. They're not, they'll probably not sacrifice their values, but we'll have to come together on something that can avoid default. Default is a disaster. Full stop. And everyone understood that in the room. I was glad to see that everyone understood what a disaster default was. Would you say that you're uh, closer to a deal today than you were a week ago? You said it was productive. Yes, I think it was, a, as, as, the, as the leader said, it was a much more cordial meeting. There were honest and real discussions about differences that we have on a whole variety of issues. But it was all respectful, and that was a good sign as well. Okay. Do you want to say one? All right. Uh, that is the Democratic leaders of the House and Senate Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries, both of New York. Uh, they're leaving a meeting at the White House along uh, with President Biden, of course, at the White House, Biden's aides and their Republican counterparts. Um, none of those that we just heard from are projecting any optimism uh, that it will be easy to reach a deal to avoid the economic catastrophe uh, that the Secretary of Treasury says uh, could come as soon as the beginning of June. Coming up next, uh, details just into CNN, what we're learning about an intruder breaking into the home of Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Just into CNN, the U.S. Secret Service is now investigating how an intruder was able to enter the home of White House national security advisor Jake Sullivan last month without being detected by the agents there to guard Sullivan's home. Let's get straight to CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, uh, Jake Sullivan's one of President Biden's closest aides. Uh, How did this happen? Well, that's what the Secret Service says it's now investigating, Jake. They know that this intruder managed to get into his home. Uh, He does have Secret Service uh, there outside of his home and appears they did not know that uh, that the intruder had made his way in. We have a statement now from the uh, from the Secret Service, they say they're trying to make sure that that they review everything about this incident to, to make sure that they learn what happened here. I'll read you just a part of what they, what they say. They say that uh, modifications to the protective posture have also been made to ensure additional security layers are in place as we con- conduct this comprehensive review. Uh, obviously, Jake, a very concerning incident. Uh, because uh, we've seen a number of these uh, these types of incidents, uh, of course, someone uh, threatening the uh, the life of a Supreme Court justice. We know that there are public officials here who get a lot of public attention and sometimes get a lot of threats as a result of that. Jake. All right, Evan Perez, thanks. Let's bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Uh, John, what do we know uh, about the agents who were on duty at Sullivan's home? Well, this actually happens a little while ago, right? Jake, this is the night that we were all at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, the 29th, uh, down in Washington, D.C. It's later that evening. This intruder comes in and is confronted by Jake Sullivan in the House. Um, This is described to me by sources as a very momentary encounter. Um, He says, what are you doing? The intruder realizes that, you know, there's somebody in the House and leaves. Um, apparently, according to sources, entered through an open door. Um, now, the Secret Service detail is posted outside. They were unaware of this till Sullivan notified them. But here's what didn't happen. Um, Secret Service didn't reach out to the D.C. Metro Police 
uh, with a description or looking for a male on foot in the area. They didn't notify the Secret Service Uniform Division, which is often on patrol in that area, um, looking after various embassies. So no one went looking for this individual. They did a video canvas. They have um, some grainy video of a male that they're looking at. But they're behind the curve here. So what we're seeing is U.S. Secret Service has ordered what they call a mission assurance review, meaning what happened here and where did procedure go? Um, there seem to be some serious gaps here, and that investigation will determine what will um, happen or not happen to those agents. But based on my experience, not notifying the police, not searching for the intruder, not sounding the alarm that night, even if your principal, your protectee, Jake Sullivan, said, look, let's not make a big deal of it, um, could result in very serious consequences for those agents. So that's just starting. Yeah, it sounds like a failure, as it's been described to us. Sounds like a failure on a wide scale. John Miller, thanks so much. Coming up, we're going to talk about new information just in from police about the man who roamed a New Mexico neighborhood with guns, killing three people, injuring six others, plus new claims from a man known for pushing propaganda. But he's talking about an American, another American, he says was killed in Ukraine. Is he telling the truth? We'll show you what he said in a video and investigate further. Topping our world lead right now, the U.S. State Department is working to try to verify or disprove notorious Russian Wagner warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin's claim that a U.S. citizen was killed fighting in Bakhmut. Prigozhin posted a video Seeming to inspect a dead soldier's body, he then showed what he claimed was an American ID. The U.S. State Department has not yet confirmed that an American died in Bakhmut. Prigozhin says that he will hand the body over to the U.S. and treat the corpse with respect for dying a, quote, worthy death. Meanwhile, just outside of Kiev, one of Ukraine's two U.S.-made Patriot Air Defense Systems may be out of commission after Russia claimed it hit the billion-dollar battery with a, quote, high-precision Strike and U.S. officials are now acknowledging that it is probably damaged, though they say it is not destroyed. The U.S. says the highly effective defense system might need to be pulled back or repaired. Taking one out of commission, even for a short time, of course, could impact Ukraine's ability to defend its capital of Kyiv. CNN Sam Kiley reports for us now from southeastern Ukraine as Russia is trying to find holes in Ukraine's defenses, which have been fortified with a steady stream of Western aid. A new Russian tactic in the air assault against Kyiv. Concentrated fire by missiles and drones, testing Ukraine's air defenses, probing for weaknesses. Ukraine says it shot down 18 missiles, including six Finzal, Russia's hypersonic weapon. It was once considered invulnerable to air defenses. Now, not so much. Six of these missiles were fired in the direction of the capital. They were all destroyed by our air defense. Russia has been trying to overwhelm Ukraine with air attacks for months. The results, though, have been more pledges of air defenses from the US and especially the UK and now even Germany after months of holding back. On the ground, the conflict grinds on in Bakhmut. Wagner mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin releasing a new video purporting to show him in the city. He demonstrates uncharacteristic sympathy for an alleged American volunteer killed fighting for Ukraine. We will hand him over to the United States of America. We'll put him in a coffin. 
Cover him with the American flag, with respect, because he did not die in his bed as a grandpa, but he died at war, and most likely a worthy death. The Washington Post has reported that U.S. intelligence documents suggest that he tried to trade Russian intelligence for ceding territory around Bakhmut. Prigozhin denies the claims. Russia said that the allegations Prigozhin offered to spy for Ukraine are a hoax. But in the Kremlin, they might one day be considered treason, making this town, perhaps, a safer place than Moscow for Russia's top mercenary. Now, Jake, uh, the uh, Kremlin has said that uh, they didn't fire six hypersonic missiles, so the Ukrainians couldn't have shot that many down. They deny, indeed, that any of their 18 uh, cruise missiles, uh, caliber cruise missiles, uh, uh, the hypersonic missiles and indeed more traditional missiles were shot down. They say they all reached their target. Now, the Ukrainians historically have been pretty accurate about the missiles that they've shot down, but they tend not to confirm whether or not the other missiles have actually made their target, particularly if they're not uh, if they are, rather, a military target, such as uh, Patriot batteries, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. The Chinese government is dispatching its envoy and former ambassador to Russia, Li Hawei, to Ukraine this week, as well as to Poland and to France and to Germany and to Russia. They say this is an effort to move toward a Beijing-mediated peace talk. And joining us now for a bipartisan interview, the top members of the Select Committee on China, Republican Chairman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin and Democratic Ranking Member Congressman Rajan Krishnamoorthy of Illinois. Uh, Chairman Gallagher, let me start with you. How realistic or unrealistic is it, do you think, for, for China to try to broker any sort of peace deal? Do, do they have the standing to do so? They do not because, of course, China is, is fueling uh, Putin's war machine. Uh, China is... Uh, standing by Vladimir Putin. She and Putin have a no-limits partnership, and I think it's important for us to understand the depths and the scale of this partnership, uh, and for that to give us the energy to continue our support of the Ukrainians, to make sure that we're modernizing our defense industrial base, to build the weapons that we need not only to help the Ukrainians fight for themselves, but to replenish our stockpiles, as well as provide weapons in the Indo-Pacific. And so let's not allow the Chinese Communist Party to perpetrate this narrative that somehow they're peacemakers when they are, in fact, supporting Putin's war machine. So even beyond that, uh, Congressman Krishnamoorthy, Ukraine's President Zelensky, he's made it clear that he, he will not accept any peace deal without liberating the entirety of Ukraine, including Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014. So I wonder if there is even a peace deal to be had. Well, it's certainly not the, uh, the Chinese peace deal, which... I think the 13-point plan still recognizes Russian aggression in Ukraine by recognizing their claims to Ukrainian land. Unless they call for a pullback of those troops, uh, there's not going to be any peace deal. Chairman Gallagher, I have to just ask you in terms of Ukraine. I mean, we've heard some pretty wobbly comments from Trump, DeSantis, even Speaker McCarthy when it comes to supporting Ukraine uh, in what is not to overstate it, an existential threat to its existence as a democracy. Uh, does that make your job harder? Obviously, you are uh, pretty uh, forthright in your expressions of support for Ukraine. Well, I think we need to do a better job, particularly for those of us who are also advocating for an investment in defense more broadly, of really explaining what we're up against in the form of the Chinese Communist Party and how you cannot isolate the Russia threat from this broader 
no limits partnership. What I increasingly see is a de facto alliance against the West in terms of Xi, Putin, and to a lesser extent, the Iranians. So teasing out the, the depths of that partnership is one part of the effort. The other thing is uh, really understanding what the crisis in Ukraine has revealed, which is just the fragility of our defense industrial base, our munitions industrial base, and making sure that we never put ourselves in this position again where we're struggling to manufacture things that we've neglected for years. So we can fix that problem through things like multi-year procurement for critical long-range precision fires, but that requires some action here on Capitol Hill. Congressman Christian Morthy, uh, Zelensky uh, reiterated his desire for U.S.-made F-16 fighter jets. Uh, U.S. officials uh, are constantly saying they're reluctant to send Ukraine weapons that can strike inside Russian borders, but Ukraine we know now, has British stealth missiles that have 155-mile range. So I don't really fully understand the argument because they have the ability to hit inside Russia. Um, I personally think that it's a good idea to provide those uh, weapons. Uh, I do think that one other thing that we should mention is that we are trying to work with our allies and partners in the region to provide them with the armaments they require. Um, I think that we should provide them with the attackums as well, which is the long-range missile, which is one, uh, one step higher than what we have provided with the HIMARS. What we've learned is that the Russians are moving back their outposts and targets beyond the range of the HIMARS, so it's logical to provide the Ukrainians with the next-level weapon to be able to um, uh, deter attacks from those and to punish uh, attacks coming from those uh, further regions. Hmm. Jeremy Gallagher, on the subject of China, uh, there's a former employee bringing a wrongful termination lawsuit against ByteDance. That's, of course, the Chinese-owned uh, parent company of TikTok. And this former employee uh, claims that China's Communist Party had, quote, supreme access to all data held by ByteDance. Now, the Biden administration has threatened a nationwide U.S. ban on the app unless the Chinese owners sell their stakes in the company. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, what's the holdup on that? Well, I think uh, we need to arrive at a unified position here in the House. I'd like to arrive at a bipartisan position. We actually have a bipartisan bicameral bill. I'm in favor of a ban or a forced sale uh, because we can't allow TikTok to become the most dominant media platform in America, not just because of the ability to exfiltrate data, track your location, but really the ability to control the news, determine what young Americans get in terms of their news, determine their sense of reality. That's very dangerous, particularly if you believe, as I do, that TikTok is owned by ByteDance and ByteDance is effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. I would say the allegations of this employee contradict in many ways the testimony of TikTok's CEO before Congress a couple months ago, and that's very troubling. And also it matches the claims of the whistleblower who came forward to Congress to talk about what actually happens with regard to TikTok and ByteDance. We have to remember the that ByteDance is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party at the very highest levels. The secretary uh, of the internal cell at uh, ByteDance, the Chinese Communist Party cell embedded there, is the editor-in-chief of ByteDance. Yeah. And so we're, I mean, it's just a bizarre kind of uh, marriage uh, between ByteDance and, and the CCP, and we have to recognize it for what it is. Congressman uh, Mike Gallagher and Raja Krishnamoorthy, the, the chair and ranking Democrat on the on the Select Committee on China. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Police are giving an update right now on that mass shooting in New Mexico. Nine people shot, three of them killed. What police are saying about the 18-year-old, whom they say is responsible, and all the weapons he had on him. That's next. Internationally, minutes ago, authorities gave an update on the investigation into the teenage gunman who killed three people and wounded six others in New Mexico. 
yesterday. Police say the gunman appeared to have targeted victims at random, that he roamed a neighborhood and fired at homes, at cars, and at people before officers shot him dead. CNN's Natasha Chen is with me now. Natasha, um, what do we know about the shooter? What did the authorities share? Yeah, Jake, just a few moments ago, the police in Farmington, New Mexico, said that Bo Wilson is the 18-year-old who was shooting indiscriminately yesterday in this neighborhood. Uh, They said that he had some minor infractions as a juvenile, but nothing serious enough to rise to the level of serious crime, nothing that would have prevented him from buying a firearm. Here's one of the officers talking about how he might have acquired the weapons he used. He is... Uh, a student of Farmington High School. He was armed with multiple firearms, including an AR-style rifle. We are still investigating how he came into possession of those firearms, uh, but we do know that he did purchase one legally November 2022. November of 2022. That's just one month after he turned 18. Uh, The police did say a little bit later on in that press conference that the other weapons may have been owned by family members, Jake. Natasha, this shooting was different from other mass shootings we've seen recently. It it didn't happen in a school. It didn't happen in a church. It happened in a mall. It it, it was somebody, I guess, wandering the streets in a way. Do, Do authorities have any sort of motive? Jake, that's the big question here. They said this was a wide and complex scene where this person really spanned uh, an area about a quarter mile, uh, shooting at mostly vehicles, and some of that gunfire hit the homes. Uh, They did say it was arbitrary. Right now, they cannot find an actual link between the suspect and these victims, nothing to indicate that he might have known these people. Uh, In speaking to the people who know him and speaking to family members, police say that there may have been potential health, mental health issues. Uh, So they are still investigating all of that, Jake. All right, Natasha, Jen, thank you so much. Up next, the immigration crisis extends well beyond the U.S.-Mexico border, extends well beyond Texas, how moving migrants has set off a dispute in New York. Plus, I'm going to talk to the mayor of Denver as he and other big city leaders are getting frustrated and making requests of the White House. In our national lead, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is facing new pushback for how he plans to handle the influx of migrants in his city. The latest contention, housing migrants in school gyms. CNN's Athena Jones is outside of school in Brooklyn where migrants are currently being sheltered. Athena, what what is the reaction from the community there? Hi, Jake. Well, there's a lot of anger and concern, uh, anger and concern about the fact that uh, the, the city did not notify not just parents, but teachers, school administrators, other members of the community about the plan to house uh, migrants here at this facility. And, you know, even this morning, there was a lot of question about whether this was already going on or whether it was something that was still being considered, you know, listening to the language from the mayor. Well, we now understand uh, from a city council member that migrants began arriving here at this location, the gym behind this school on Sunday. We went into that gymnasium. It cots wall to wall. They appear to be housing adult migrants, so men and women. But there's a lot of uncertainty about who these people are, talking to the parents, and they're concerned about what, how well they've been vetted, what their health status is, and the fact that school is still in session. They're concerned about the atmosphere that having these migrants here just steps away will create for the children. Take a listen to what one mother uh, who has a son in pre-K here uh, had to say. Robin Williams is her name. Take a listen. I was scared. I was nervous. I felt like it was the wrong decision that they made at the time where nobody knew anything. My concern is our well-being about our children. 
that resign, that go to school to get an education at PS 188. Our families that's walking around here not knowing who we taking in for sheltering, for our safety and our well-being. And one more thing, the mayor has stressed that these gyms are separate and separate buildings from the school. But as one woman we spoke to, but it's a hop, skip and a jump. There's like about three or four feet separating the school from the gym that's right behind it. And so while the mayor is guaranteeing there will be no interaction between migrants and students, a lot of folks around here question how that's even possible. I should mention this is a school for 3K through, uh, through grade five. So just a lot of concern. Uh, in this community. Jake. All right, Athena Jones in New York, thanks so much. It's not just a New York problem, of course, in Denver, Colorado today. Several dozen migrants arrived at a processing center, many of them hoping to get bus tickets to other cities. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock joins us now. Mayor Hancock, good to see you again. So you, along with the mayors of Los Angeles, Houston, and New York City, wrote a joint letter to President Biden asking him to meet with all of you to talk about this issue. Have you heard any response, and, and what do you want to say to him? Uh, no, we have not, Jake, and it's good to be with you as well. We've not heard back from the White House, but not surprising in that the uh, president is dealing with the congressional conversations around the uh, debt ceiling today. So uh, we do expect to hear from him, and I'm sure we'll hear from him soon. Where we'll learn uh, when and if we get a chance to sit down with the president. What do you need from the federal government? We have serious concerns with regards to one policy. It's important to know that we're all on the same page. To obviously cities like New York and Denver and Chicago, uh, D.C., Houston are stressed um, uh, in terms of our resources. Denver has expended $17 million. We know that that is, uh, I give it a well, a tic-tac compared to what's happening in New York City and other cities like Chicago and D.C. Uh, but the reality is that proportionally it's a major impact for us. And we also need uh, support around shelter facilities. As you just did a story in New York, that's because they're out of space and the migrants continue to come. New York, Denver, Chicago, we want to make sure that we respond in a compassionate, humane manner, um, but we are stressed, and we need support from the federal government at this time. Yeah, I mean, it is a humanitarian crisis, and you, you don't have the means. You don't have the money, not just you, but Houston and Dallas and New York and D.C. and L.A. and Chicago. You, you don't have it. Is it fair to say that the failure to actually have a border that functions as a border is a federal failing, uh, but you and the mayors and citizens of all these other cities, uh, especially, of course, the border towns in Arizona, California, and Texas, are the ones that are paying the price. Is that, is that a fair description, do you think? Jake couldn't have said it better myself. You're absolutely correct. Our cities are really uh, carrying the burden um, that is really a federal burden with regards to immigration policies and strategies. Um, it's unfortunate, and unfortunately, the federal government hasn't figured out how to respond uh, to those of us who are calling for their help and support at this time. Many of us have some states that, like Colorado, who are leaning in to help to help us. We like some of the language and actions that have come out of the White House recently. But I think they need to know more clearly what's happening on the ground as we try to respond, again, in a humane manner for those souls that have come to our cities. Yeah, I mean, again, look. These are people in dire circumstances. Most of them are, are in the United States just because they're trying to provide for a better life. But it is a federal responsibility to keep the border secure. Um, we saw in New York some American veterans, homeless veterans, kicked out of a hotel, moved to another uh, hotel uh, because to, to make room for, for some of these individuals. And again, our hearts all obviously go out to them. They, they, they're in dire need. You've previously mentioned a uh, possible need to cut city services uh, for the citizens of Denver if you don't get... Uh, federal help. What services would be cut? 
Well, we don't know yet. And we're trying to do everything we can not to have to go to direction or go in that direction of, in a very uh, uh, serious way uh, to cut services. I did mention it because I was talking about the broad general spectrum of the options that we have available. And if we don't get any help from the federal government, we won't have a choice. Uh, but to cut services while we try to care for those who are coming to our city so that we don't have further chaos and even more people who are unhoused in our streets. As you know, because I've seen you do the stories, there are many cities like Denver and San Francisco and D.C. and New York who are already who are already struggling to take care of those who are unhoused in our cities. This exacerbates the challenge. In fact, that's how we found out that we had migrants come into our city because they were going to our homeless shelters and our providers called us and said, we've got a problem. And uh, we had to move to, to address it. So we need help and we need it quickly. And we need a federal government to coordinate itself to figure out how to move in and assist uh, these our cities so that we don't have to cut services and impact our delivery of services to the people uh, in our cities. President Biden, if you're watching, the mayor of Denver is saying the buck stops at the Resolute Desk. He needs help. Mayor Michael Hancock, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Jake, thank you for having me. Coming up next, the future of artificial intelligence. Should it be regulated? Hear the testimony on Capitol Hill today calling for new rules in a world of deep fakes and malicious actors. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a high school student is suspended for recording her teacher using the N-word in geometry class. The school says the student violated school policy by recording it. We're going to talk to the student's mother and lawyer this hour. Plus... We're just minutes away from North Carolina state lawmakers voting to override the Democratic governor's veto of a 12-week abortion ban. But a few key lawmakers could potentially stop the override. Leading this hour with our tech lead, a consequential hearing about the future and technology that could impact almost every job and industry around the world. We're talking about artificial intelligence or AI. The CEO of OpenAI testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee today. The company is behind one of the most prominent AI tools, ChatGPT. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to AI. There are already multiple apps and programs you can use to create art, pictures, phone calls, and even to impersonate people's voices. The list of potential misuses of AI is terrifyingly long and getting longer every day. And it all leads to numerous questions about how and what and whether to regulate. CNN's Nick Watt takes a closer look now at some of the possibly life-changing benefits and also terrifying risks posed by AI brought up in today's hearing. My worst fears are that we cause significant, we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. Today's Senate hearing is a crucial step in humanity's effort to prevent that harm and to rein in the handful of players controlling this tech. So I think there needs to be incredible scrutiny on us and our competitors. His company created ChatGPT. You know, it can write a term paper or a song, captured imaginations and headlines. Could artificial intelligence soon put us all out of work? AI has potentially world-changing benefits. Equitable education, helping eradicate disease, transportation. AI can be life-enhancing or maybe an existential threat to humanity. We know some of the risks, like rampant misinformation. These new systems are going to be destabilizing. They can and will create persuasive lies at a scale humanity has never seen before. Democracy itself is threatened. As are jobs. GPT-4 will, I think, entirely automate away some jobs. And it will create new ones that we believe will be much better. There are risks like automated weapons we can imagine. 
could AI create a situation where a drone can select the target itself? I think we shouldn't allow that. Well, can it be done? Sure. And there are risks we can, for now, barely even comprehend. As these systems do become more capable, and I'm not sure how far away that is, but maybe not, not super far, I think it's important that we also spend time talking about how we're going to confront those challenges. So, what do we do? Talk um, in plain English and tell me what, if any, rules we ought to implement. Number one, a safety review like we use with the FDA prior to widespread deployment. Suggestions today to license developers and or the most powerful AI systems. I think a model that can uh, persuade, manipulate, influence a person's behavior or a person's beliefs, that would be a good threshold. Um, I think a model that could help create novel biological agents would be a great threshold. There was support in this room for a brand new government agency to oversee AI, but... For every success story in government regulation, you can think of five failures. And this technology is moving very, very fast. Government can be glacial. When you look at the record of Congress in dealing with innovation, technology, and rapid change, we're not designed for that. I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible for Congress to keep up with the speed of technology. And right now, we are just 18 months away from an election, an avalanche, a growing avalanche of misinformation will probably be coming our way. So we don't have much time to do something about at least certain aspects of this. The other question, you know, should this be a U.S.-led effort? Should the U.S. uh, propose things and then the world follow? Should there be an international body? There wasn't full agreement on that today. But one thing, listen, three hours on the hill, Three minutes on TV is not enough to deal with this issue. That committee will be meeting many more times. Many great brains looking into this. Um, And in terms of us, you, me, everybody, experts tell me, every expert tells me we need to educate ourselves so that we know what's coming down the pike and how it's going to impact us. Yeah, we tend to trail the advances in technology by several, several years. Nick Watt. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Amy Webb. She's a futurist. She's a professor of strategic foresight at New York University Stern School of Business and much more. Uh, Amy, thanks for joining us. So we heard OpenAI CEO Sam Altman say today that one of his biggest concerns is the potential for AI, for artificial intelligence, to be used to manipulate voters, to spread election disinformation. Uh, I mean, we've seen videos of Trump and Biden uh, that were not real go viral, ones that were generated by AI. Um, how worried are you that this could be a real problem as we head into 2024? Sure. Well, I think Senator uh, Blumenthal used ChatGPT alongside a voice cloning tool at the beginning of his remarks to prove how simple it would be for anybody to generate content sort of auto-magically. But quite frankly, these stunts that we continue to see over and over again aren't moving the needle in terms of getting to outcomes that we all want, because we've been here before. Congress has a terrible track record of staying on the same pace as technology and trying to use the same regulatory actions and tools we have that make sense in other fields and applying them to this space where so much is happening so fast. So one of the witnesses in today's hearing suggested that there there should be a cabinet-level agency created inside the U.S. government to regulate Uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, Realistically, though, how do you begin to put regulations on something that is already out there? And it's obviously not just in the United States. Whatever we do here won't necessarily have any impact on Russia or Iran or China or anywhere else. 
Jake, that's an excellent point. Re regardless of what regulatory frameworks we develop, they will not carry any weight in China, where a lot of the same technology is already advancing, in some cases, faster than it is in the United States. We hear a lot about ChatGPT, but there are similar large language models, so the same types of very powerful tools that exist in China, and whatever regulations we come up with will have very little bearing. It is a good idea to have somebody in our government taking the longer view. We used to have something called the Office of Technology Assessment. They were charged not with making regulations, but making our regulators informed. They were a nonpartisan group of scientists and researchers. All they did was help the people who were in charge of regulating these things just get up to speed and be more informed so that we weren't relying on third parties. But that got defunded in the 90s. It's left this incredible vacuum. And as concerned as everybody is today about ChatGPT, this is one tiny sliver of AI. It's also just one area of emerging science and technology that has the opportunity to drastically impact our society and our economy. So you've suggested an international agency to regulate AI, a mix of researchers, economists, futurists from around the world working together. What's the incentive for China or Russia to participate in something like that? Well, the model that I describe in my book, The Big Nine, is really anchored in the Bretton Woods uh, sort of economic model, where we're all putting in data. Uh, every country is putting in data. Every country has something to gain or to lose. Um, and it, it's, uh, it comes down to economics. Uh, either we make it easy to continue to participate with China, perhaps not Russia, given the current situation, or just collectively make it a little harder on them. And I think we have to enact new pressure points in order to get folks to the table. Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham asked the head of OpenAI, how can this technology change warfare? Uh, and he came up with a scenario that, that's terrifying. Take a listen. You can plug into a drone the coordinates and it can fly out and it goes over this target and it drops a missile on this car moving down the road and somebody's watching it. Could AI create a situation where a drone can select the target itself? I think we shouldn't allow that. Well, can it be done? Sure. It can be done, he's saying. That's right. I don't know why that was such a, a revelation. Uh, this is just simple computer recognition and, and computer vision. And then yeah, I don't, I don't want to belittle the severity of what we're talking about. But these tools aren't brand new. They've actually existed for quite a while now. And if we have the capability of doing that in our military, we have to assume that others around the world do as well. One of the things I'm hearing about as I talk to lawmakers and others in the field is a sort of new type of AI arms race. Um, it's less about automated systems and algorithm, algorithms fighting each other and just more building up this arsenal of tools that involve things like um, automated missile systems, as well as things like combining AI and biology um, to, to create novel viruses and other types of things, and also new types of bio-cybersecurity challenges, again, that are anchored in AI. There's a lot. Um, and I, I feel like we are always sort of a, a little bit behind. Um, yeah. And I've been feeling that way for the past decade. <laughs> Amy Webb, come back uh, and talk more about this. We really appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. Any moment, President Biden is expected to speak after his critical meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House. They do not appear any closer to a deal to avoid the catastrophic default that's coming, the Secretary of Treasury warns, in June. Then, has Elon Musk taken off his Twitter mask? His latest tweets about George Soros that many experts say cross a line. 
President Biden and top congressional leaders just wrapped up the high-stakes meeting on the looming U.S. default on the national debt a short while ago. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said it's possible a deal could be reached by the end of the week, but he's cautioning that while he and the White, that he and the White House remain very far apart. President Biden, meanwhile, has canceled uh, part of his upcoming overseas trip because the talks don't seem to be making much progress. Uh, joining us now, Republican Congressman Don Bacon uh, of Nebraska. Congressman, thanks for. They're joining us. I assume you see uh, President Biden returning um, early from his overseas trip, canceling a whole leg of it as a sign that these debt ceiling negotiations are not going particularly well. well I wish it was f- farther along than what it is right now, but I- I'm glad he's going to delay his or cut his trip short. He's got to take this serious. You know, today we didn't get progress on an end state or a, a, uh, an agreement, but what I did hear was both sides said they wanted to negotiate. And both sides said they were willing to compromise. That is a step forward. Unfortunately, we lost 90 days where the president did not want to talk or negotiate. Uh, but I think he's, his spirit is in a better spot right now when he's saying he's willing to negotiate. And he's already offered up some sense of compromises uh, that he'll make with us. And for me, I think for the GOP, these are, these are victories. We know we can't get everything we want, uh, but saying absolutely no compromise was not right either. Uh, I want you to listen to uh, what your leading, the Republican leading nominee for president, said about debt ceiling negotiations last week during our CNN town hall. I say to the Republicans out there, congressmen, senators, if they don't give you massive cuts, you're going to have to do a default. Does that make your job and the job of negotiators more difficult, having President Trump saying you should default and that a default is just psychological? Because obviously, it's not just psychological. It would be catastrophic for the economy. Well, it would be bad for our economy, and we do not want to default. I'm glad that Kevin McCarthy and President Biden say they want to negotiate and they want to raise the debt ceiling, but they got to meet in the middle somewhere. I point out President Trump negotiated with Speaker Pelosi, and, and they raised the debt ceiling three times, and the, spend, and the spending went up. So I don't think the president followed his own medicine when he was the president. You voted uh, to raise the debt ceiling two of those three times uh, under Trump uh, without demanding spending cuts. Do you regret that? No, you know, at the time we, we supported most of the agenda at that point, especially the first year where we voted for the tax reform, which I thought we needed. It built the strongest economy in 40 years. It actually raised the revenue. And then we had COVID where we, we thought we had to spend money to help people that were out of work as we shut down their businesses. But I would say the difference now is I opposed most of the agenda under President Biden, and so did most of the Republicans. Uh, two of those massive spending bills didn't get a single Republican on there, and now we're at the debt ceiling. So we do want a compromise. We do want to meet somewhere in the middle. But I supported most of the agenda under the previous president. The, the bill that House Republicans passed, the debt ceiling uh, bill, the budget bill, um, suggests an overall spending cut without actually detailing any specific cuts. Um, isn't that kind of the definition of having your cake and eating it too, pretending to make tough choices? While- well, what we, what we said is we could e- increase spending 1% a year. So that is a cut compared to what was projected at 3 to 5%. So raising spending 1% a year, it, it is a cut. Now, actually, the, President Biden has expressed interest in caps as well. It probably won't be 1%. Maybe it'll be 2%, maybe 3%, but that's what we need to negotiate. But we also targeted the COVID money that has not been spent. That's $30 billion. We talked about the tuition, uh, paying off those tuition loans, which I believe the Supreme Court will find unconstitutional. That is $400 billion. 
And we also detailed some of the Inflation Reduction Act tax incentives uh, that was also in the billions and billions of dollars. In fact, CBO is now scoring them three times higher than when the bill was passed. So we did have some concrete uh, pr proposals there. But I will point out again, Jake, that I realize we're not going to get everything we want. We're going to have to meet in the middle, and hopefully we can make some progress towards getting some fiscal sanity. Because at $32 trillion in debt, and it's going to grow about $2 trillion a year, we're building a debt-to-GDP ratio of 200%. And that is unsustainable for our country. Congressman uh, Don Bacon of Nebraska, Thank good you. to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Coming up, how one Democratic state lawmaker could change abortion laws in North Carolina as state lawmakers take the first step to override Democratic Governor Cooper's veto. Stay with us. In our Health Lead Day, an abortion showdown. Moments ago, the North Carolina State Senate voted to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto of legislation that would ban abortion in the state of North Carolina at 12 weeks, uh, that's uh, surgical abortion, and medical abortion after 10 weeks. The bill will now head to the House where Republicans will have to stick together to use their slim supermajority in order to override the veto. One of the deciding votes could come from State Representative Tricia Cotham, who switched from Democrat to Republican last month, giving Republicans a veto-proof majority. She previously had been an outspoken supporter of abortion rights, but she changed her position to become one of the key votes who helped pass the 12-week abortion ban. The North Carolina House is expected to vote after 8 p.m. this evening. Let's discuss all this. So, Paul, a, a recent poll shows a majority of North Carolina voters, 57 percent, and that's a purple state. Right. They, have a, they have a Democratic governor and two Republican senators. 57 percent support maintaining the state's current 20-week ban or would expand it. Uh, so, it, so it's even uh, more liberal. Lengthen the, right. Lengthen. Uh, yeah, it, it, just over a quarter of voters wanted abortion severely restricted or completely banned. That kind of matches up with what we're seeing nationally. Um, voters w support abortion rights, and yet Republicans are coming in and, and taking them away. Right. It's the it's Joni Mitchell uh, philosophy. You don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm -hmm. The percentage of Americans, the, the fact of abortion hasn't changed, but the legality has. And so the support for abortion rights has gone way, way up. Uh, the day the Dobbs decision came down, my friend Cecile Richards, longtime leader of Planned Parenthood, said this will not age well. She was right. Right. This issue. In other words, uh, Obamacare aged well for the Democrats, crushed them in the first midterm. But over time, it got better for them. Gay marriage, the same thing. Uh, this is not aging well for Republicans. You're, you're seeing Mr. Trump getting wound around the axle on it. Tomorrow, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals will hear the case on Mifepristone, the, the abortion drug mm -hmm. that the vast majority of Americans support and that conservative judge in Amarillo, Texas, outlawed. So this is just going to continue and continue. It's going to be a huge problem for Republicans electorally, huge problem for women personally. And, and Ryan, uh, it, this is obviously a big issue, uh, even in the Republican primaries where all the candidates consider themselves anti-abortion. Uh, Donald Trump last week declined to tell Caitlin Collins whether he would sign an, a national abortion ban. He also suggested that Florida's uh, abortion ban was too harsh. Governor DeSantis has now directly responded to that. Uh, take a look. Protecting um, an unborn child when there's the detectable heartbeat uh, is something that almost probably 99% of pro-lifers support. He didn't give an answer about uh, would you have signed the heartbeat bill that Florida did. They had all the exceptions that people talk about. The legislature put it in. Uh, I signed the bill. I was proud to do it. He won't answer whether he would sign it or not. Uh, what do you make of this? First of all, that's, we should know. I mean, it's really one of the first times that DeSantis, even though he just says he, not Trump, has, has 
said anything even mildly critical in person about Trump. Yeah. There are two really important elements going on when you look at this in the GOP, the backdrop of the GOP presidential race that are underreported, but I think really important. The first is the, there's a big split that's showing up in the polls between college-educated, non-college-educated Trump supporters among social conservatives. And the college-educated crowd is really looking for somebody else right now. Hmm. And so when it comes to the abortion issue, that's an incredibly important part of the electorate that's up for grabs right now. And so DeSantis and the people getting into the race have to keep that in mind. And so I think that's, that's a part of, of wanting to push Trump on this because those people are gettable from, from Trump's base of voters. And then secondly, um, the issue of intensity often doesn't get asked in polls. Um, it, it, the majority of them don't ask about it. But when you look at large national surveys that ask about this issue in terms of how important it is, um, it's, it's not as important as people think that it is, even among social, socially conservative uh, former Trump supporters. Other things like schools and crime and inflation still rank up there very, very highly. So voters are going to be making up their minds about candidates, um, essentially how they put this issue in proportion against other things. Yeah, but and so over, overplaying your hand on it can also work, work against you. So those two things are actually really important, and you have to thread both of them at the same time. What's interesting, though, also, is this is the first time this has not been theoretical, right? right. Like, I mean, exactly. I, I mean, there was a time when people said, oh, Donald Trump's never going to do anything about abortion. George W. Bush isn't going to do anything about Like, it was all kind of a wink and a nod, but now it's real. And there are bans all over the country. And we've seen backlash against Republicans. I mean, look at what happened even in Wisconsin for that Supreme Court race where the Democrat or the liberal, the liberal candidate talked explicitly about this. Or Kansas. She, in Kansas. She, and, but in, in Wisconsin, she won. She blew yeah. out of the water. And this, that is you know, an evenly divided state. And so I think in the Republican primary, you're going to see a lot of people racing to the right Trump has actually come out and said about the political, the potential political perils. Remember, he came out right after the 2022 election, blamed the right, and then immediately was, you know, smacked by the right, saying, "No, that's not that's not what you're supposed to say." And I think they've 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 resolved it at this point. Um, but still, this to to be able to thread the needle of having a general election after running to the right on abortion, that is going to be the test here for whoever emerges from the Republican side. It's interesting because Trump is, is obviously trying to distance himself from this, even though he, with the possible exception of Mitch McConnell, is more, is more responsible for Roe v. Wade being gone than anyone else. Yes, and he's even touted that it was under his watch that this happened, and, and that in its, his own right is this is going to show that what he can do kind of down the line. I think something that's notable to Jackie's point about how the primaries can pay, play out way drastically different than the general election is the fact that you do have some Republicans like Nancy Mace coming out saying, mm-hmm. hey, this rhetoric on abortion mm-hmm. is so extreme that this is going to hurt Republicans. So I do think they're taking a bit of a step back. Not everyone, but some of them to say, what is the messaging that we're going to do to really appeal to not just really conservative Republican voters, but to moderates or people that are more pro-life? So I think that's just something to watch that some of them are just saying, hey, like, let's just step away from this a bit or let's tone this down because primaries is a completely different thing than the general election. Although we should note, uh, Eric Erickson, the conservative radio host, um, seems to be pointing to Trump, uh, who's trying to distance himself from this uh, and say, why is this guy our front runner? He, he tweeted... Um, the conservative movement should be alarmed that the front runner for the GOP is running against the pro-life cause and against entitlement uh, reform. What do, you, what do you make of that? This goes to Camilla's point. There's a very big difference between running a primary and running the general election. This is the fix that they're in. Ryan talked about these college-educated Republican voters. They're hidden pro-row voters. One of the reasons that pollsters got the midterms wrong was a whole lot of Republicans got in that booth and decided, I don't want to lose Roe v. Wade. 
I want to punish my own party. And this this is going to continue to play out to the detriment of Republicans. You, you talk, Jack, you talk about Wisconsin. Biden won this state by, I think, 1.2 percent. Mm-hmm. The liberal judge won by 11 percent exactly. in April, in an off year. She won by 153,000 votes. It was a landslide because of the pro-choice position. This is this is a beginning of my career. Abortion was a huge winner for the Republicans. Now it's a huge loser. You know, it's interesting also because uh, the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Roberts tried to kind of find some sort of I wouldn't call it middle ground. But but, you know, he, he came out basically in favor of Mississippi's law 15-week ban, but not in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, right? And uh, he was obviously, he turned around and nobody was following him. But if you were advising a Republican presidential candidate, would you tell them to land at somewhere? I think uh, Nikki Haley has tried to some find a, la- a, la- a lane in the 12 to 15 week area, Ish. right? She said some stuff. Yeah, right. It's, 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 it's unclear exactly. But would, yeah. is, would you tell them to try to do that as opposed to the complete ban? Um, yeah, I think you, you would want to try to land where most Americans are on this issue. I mean, it, it changes by trimester. The 12 to 15 week area tracks where, with where a lot of people are, including European countries' policies as well. It's defensible. And, and it seems to be where the candidates kind of are trending right now, where they want to go on, yeah. on this issue. I mean, I'll point out that Eric Erickson also mentioned entitlement reform yeah. in right. that tweet, right. which is something that um, <laughs> Republicans, believe it or not, even as they look at primaries, are starting to talk more about real issues again because they learned some lessons last November about just how far the culture war issues actually take you. Hmm. All right. Thanks to all. Next, we're going to talk to the mother of a high school student who was suspended for recording her teacher saying the N-word. The school is not apologizing for punishing the student. Stay with us. In our national lead in Springfield, Missouri, a 15-year-old high school student got punished for doing what many would argue was the right thing to do and constitutes whistleblowing. 15-year-old Mary Walton recorded her geometry teacher using the N-word in class. Instead of being praised for capturing a very troubling and problematic incident, she was given a three-day suspension. CNN's Adrian Broadus looks into why. Video shared on social media shows a high school teacher using the N-word at least twice in a Missouri classroom. Mary Walton, a 15-year-old student, disturbed, began filming. I'm not calling anyone. I understand. I can say the word. That was May 9th. The teacher was initially placed on administrative leave. The principal calling the language, quote, inappropriate and inexcusable. A week later, that teacher has resigned. A statement from Springfield Public Schools announces he is, quote, no longer employed. But Mary was also punished suspended for three days over the recording. The harshest penalty for this type of offense under school cell phone rules, her lawyer says. We've asked them to lift the suspension, let her go back to school immediately and apologize. Mary saw something that she believed needed to be reported. According to a news release from Mary's attorney, Natalie Hull, the geometry teacher interrupted a conversation between students about the slur, using the word several times before the recording starts. Students explain its derogatory context before one cautions the teacher about using it. Say right now, as a teacher, if you want to keep your job, this isn't a threat. I'm not. About 50 seconds into the short clip given to CNN by Ho, the teacher notices the camera recording him. No. The school district says its discipline is, quote, confidential per federal law, but noted that the student handbook limits inappropriate use of electronics and considers the identification of minor students when disseminating video. 
The school district also prohibits, quote, recording of faculty or staff in the classroom without prior approval and recording, quote, acts of violence. Hull claims that the policy is problematic and it has a chilling effect on students like Mary looking to hold authority figures accountable. They could get in trouble for capturing evidence of a crime. And Mary using that cell phone camera to hold that teacher accountable. And many of you may remember the judge who presided over the famous O.J. Simpson trial severely limited the use of the word in his courtroom. This after a key witness for the prosecution used the word dozens of times. That was in the 90s. Today, we're talking about a teacher in a classroom who used the same word that has a painful painful history for so many people in our country. Jake. One of the ugliest words, if not the ugliest word that exists. Uh, Adrian Broadus, thank you so much. Joining us now, Kate Wellborn, who is the mother of 15-year-old Mary Walton, and Natalie Hull, the attorney represented, representing Mary. Uh, Kate, let's, let's just start with your daughter. How's she doing? Does she want to stay at the school? What's your reaction to all this? Um, Mary does get to return to school tomorrow, and she does intend to return. Um, I think that the amount of attention that um, things have gotten, that was a, an unexpected turn for her. Um, and I think that she she would prefer things to be a little quieter, um, but she does intend to return and I'm proud of her for doing that. Um, she is, I mean, something of a whistleblower, um, but Natalie, uh, I guess the school argues that phones are not allowed in classrooms. Uh, and is this just a matter of, of, break, of, uh, of her breaking the rules? We should note that the teacher was initially put on administrative leave and then ultimately resigned. Uh, But what's your argument, um, Natalie, about why uh, Mary shouldn't be punished, um, given the fact that the school says, well, she did break the rules? Sometimes you need to break the rules for what's right. And this rule does not have an well, one, it's inappropriate use is their rule, but this would absolutely be appropriate use for a video. Um, when there is misconduct or illegal activity occurring, uh, indisputable, irrefutable evidence is absolutely beneficial in situations like like this. Um, we have a room full of, of teenagers, and if they had gone to the administration with only their word, who knows exactly how long an investigation would have taken, who knows if they would have been believed, but being able to provide documented evidence such as this is absolutely essential for situations this or worse. If you look at the the policy itself, as as, um, you described, it specifically states that they are not even allowed to take video of acts of violence, which Mm -hmm. absolutely limits student from even being able to take video of of an actual crime. Right, right. And Kate, um, as parents, we tell our kids to do the right thing. Uh, and when they see something, to say something and, and to come forward. Uh, in this case, your daughter did that. She was punished. Um, what message do you think the school is sending to young people uh, about speaking truth to power and standing up for what's right? I think they're saying, know your place. And I think that they are protecting the I think they're protecting the adults and the status quo more than they are encouraging the students to learn or grow or apply critical thinking skills. Natalie, um, 
How's this going to end, do you think? Uh, it, does, obviously, she's, uh, you're saying Mary's going back to school tomorrow, so, th- so your, your protest of the three-day suspension uh, didn't work. Uh, what's next? We're taking this on a step-by-step, day-by-day uh, basis. Right now, we're actually just still hoping that the school district will take this as an opportunity to rethink their stance on lifting, or excuse me, on expunging this from Mary's record and still consider issuing an apology to Mary. This is a perfect opportunity for the school district to show their students that it is okay to acknowledge when you have made the wrong decision, that it is okay to say, you know what, we were wrong with how we handled this, Um, just like they're trying to say Mary was, um, that we were wrong in how we handled this and we're going to apologize. We're going to say that we did we did this incorrectly. We should have done it this way. And we're sorry for how we how we treated Mary. Well, Kate, your daughter is a whistleblower. She's speaking truth to power. She's bringing injustice forward. Uh, there's a big future for her in journalism. Uh, if she wants to get into it, we need brave people like her. Kate Welburn, Natalie Hall. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Comparing one of the world's richest people to a comic book supervillain, how Elon Musk's latest Twitter rant is getting him in trouble. Again, that's next. In our politics lead, in a rare rebuke, Israel's foreign ministry today is slamming Elon Musk's recent series of tweets, saying they have a, quote, anti-Semitic feeling to it. Yesterday, Musk launched a baseless Twitter attack against George Soros, the progressive Jewish philanthropist who's often the target of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Musk tweeted that Soros reminds him of Magneto, A comic book supervillain, both, of course, Soros and Magneto, are Holocaust survivors and Jewish. Musk's reply, he wrote, Soros does not have good intentions and, quote, wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros uh, hates humanity, unquote. Um, Obviously, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic to criticize George Soros, but uh, the tweets uh, do engage, critics say, in, in tropes that Jews are falsely cast as evil masterminds set out to harm the masses. Here to discuss Sarah Fisher, CNN media analyst and Axios senior media reporter, along with Ted Deutsch, who's CEO of the American Jewish Committee, a former Democratic congressman from from Florida. So, Sarah, uh, Musk didn't say what prompted the attack, but you can't ignore the timing that Soros recently disclosed he had sold his entire holdings of stock in in Tesla, which, of course, is is owned by Musk. We're we're used to seeing uh, controversial comments from from, uh, Musk. Were you surprised by this? I wasn't surprised by this, Jake. Musk has repeatedly, you know, engaged in far-right conspiracies. You'll recall with the Paul Pelosi attack, he tweeted out misinformation around that. But I think it is important to note that Elon Musk, who still runs a publicly traded business in Tesla, is going to have to be mindful of the fact that anytime he's going to pick on someone online for dumping his stock, he risks other people wanting to come in and buy it. And so, you know, as a business person, this was not the strongest move. But Musk has long sort of held some of these, you know, more Republican right-leaning beliefs. Shortly after he took over Twitter, he allowed a bunch of accounts back on the platform that had been banned, including some neo-Nazi accounts. And so to hear this type of rhetoric coming from Elon Musk, it's not totally shocking. Uh- Ted Deutsch, former Congressman uh, Deutsch, uh, obviously criticizing uh, George Soros is not inherently anti-Semitic. What did you think of this? Did you think comparing him to Magneto, who is an evil supervillain, who is also like George Soros, Jewish and a Holocaust survivor, saying that he hates humanity? Did that cross a line for you? Sure, of course it did, Jake. No, it's not 
Uh, it's not unacceptable to criticize George Soros or anyone else, but it is clearly not an accident when you compare him to a cartoon villain who, like George Soros, survived the Warsaw Ghetto uh, and Auschwitz. The tweet about this notion that Soros hates humanity, is trying to destroy civilization, just plays into the classic anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about uh, about Jewish wealth and power. And we've seen anti-Semitism surge since Musk took over, took over Twitter. We've seen massive cuts to the moderation team at Twitter. And our own survey showed that two-thirds of Jews have experienced anti-Semitism, seen anti-Semitism online, 85% of those under 30, and people feel physically threatened as a result. There are repercussions when you do things like this. Uh, it's, it's unacceptable, it's dangerous, and it plays into these classic conspiracy theories that are inherently anti-Semitic. Uh, and Sarah, you know, it's, it's interesting um, in terms of how Elon Musk has, has chosen to, to run the platform. He, he's constantly engaging with people who are bad faith actors. I mean, people who subscribe to QAnon, people who are white supremacists, people who are focused on black on white violence. I mean, he's people who criticize diversity in Hollywood casting. I mean, these are choices he's making. Yeah, and they're surprising choices, Jake, because Twitter has been marked down by analysts. It's hemorrhaging its ad revenue. And so Elon Musk, you would think, as the CEO of this company, who said, by the way, that he wants to manage costs to ensure that it's profitable, would be very mindful of the misinformation that he puts out there and the types of accounts that he engages with because he wants to bring those advertisers back. Now, when we talk to agency executives, people who are buying ads on behalf of Fortune 500 brands and smaller companies, they will tell you that they have to caution their clients when it it comes to buying ads on Twitter, not just because of some of the content moderation going down, but also because of Elon Musk himself spewing misinformation. So it's puzzling to me why he continues to do this and to behave this way. But hopefully now that they have a new CEO, you know, an advertising executive with a lot of experience, maybe she can rein him in. So uh, how, uh, uh, Congressman Deutsch, um, your governor, uh, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, uh, frequently criticizes George Soros. I mean, it's, it is something he does. It's something that a lot of people do because he puts a lot of money into progressive causes, including progressive districts attorney. Um, would you argue that that is inherently anti-Semitic? I mean, how would... I, go ahead. I, yeah, Jake, I don't want to parse tweets and criticism of George Soros. I, I think we have to acknowledge in this in this instance that comparing George Soros to a Holocaust survivor cartoon villain is not an accident, but it's not. I also don't want to miss the opportunity, Jake, to point out that as we're having this conversation, the White House is working on a national action plan to combat anti-Semitism. I hope that it calls for greater transparency at all the social media companies and access to the algorithms and the ability to share their community standards so that the world understands that anti-Semitism is not acceptable on any social media sites. All right, Ted Deutsch, Sarah Fisher, thanks to both of you for joining. Appreciate it. Coming up next, see the scare during a Little League baseball game in an umpire's quick thinking that saved the day. But first, CNN's Wolf Blitzer coming up next in the Situation Room. Wolf? Jake, we're going to have much, much more on the very disturbing intrusion at the home of President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. Thank you, the U.S. Secret Service now investigating how the intruder actually entered the house undetected by the agents who were guarding the property. This 
as the violent attack at Congressman Jerry Connolly's office raising serious new concerns about the growing threat to U.S. lawmakers. All of that, much more coming up right at the top of the hour in the Situation Room. Five minutes and 15 seconds away. Wolf, can't wait to watch. And our national lead, a twist, a twisted scene at a youth baseball game in Jacksonville, Florida, when a dust devil appeared out of nowhere. Stay tuned. International League, scary moments at a kid's uh, baseball game in Jacksonville, Florida, when a dust devil appeared out of nowhere, surrounded seven-year-old catcher uh, Bauer Zoya. A a quick-thinking umpire grabbed Zoya away from home plate, moved him to safety. Young Caster said, although the entire incident was only a few seconds long, it was terrifying. I couldn't breathe that much, so I hurted my breath. And I feel like I couldn't touch the ground, so I kind of lifted up a little bit. Zoya returned to the game, thanks to a little help from Dad, who poured water on his face to get rid of the dirt. Zoya even thinks the whole situation helped him play better. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky if you have access to it. At Jake Tapper, you can tweet the show at the lead scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door to a place I call The Situation. And we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.